experience in the team in this in the SEAL teams, military in general, special operations community specifically. I think what characterizes that environment is it is small, highly cohesive teams, highly trained, enabled by advanced technology, trying to do outsized things. So you think of a 16-man SEAL platoon. Given the team dynamic, the training, the technology, I mean, they're trying to punch above their weight in terms of what 12 people would otherwise be able to do. Interestingly, I found that that same dynamic speaks to advanced manufacturing. It's what 20 or 30 years ago, what was required to make certain products now is made by fewer people, but those fewer people are very highly trained. They're supported by very robust processes and, and, and technology. Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Corum, and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. Bill Berrien is the owner and CEO of Pendel Global Precision, a veteran-owned contract manufacturer of precision machine components located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Through his varied career spanning military service and business, Bill has demonstrated a passion for leadership and developing people, and he's created a new model for manufacturing and technical workforce development. In this episode, we discuss modern-day rites of passage and the value of deliberately engaging in difficult situations. Bill also details the similarities between special operations and advanced manufacturing and how his company was able to quickly pivot to create life-saving ventilator components during the COVID pandemic. If you are a leader in any capacity, this conversation will challenge and encourage you to invest in your people and to teach them to use technology and agile thinking to accomplish outsized tasks. If you find today's podcast valuable, please subscribe and share it with your friends and leave us a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. And now it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Well, Bill, glad to have you on today. Eric, great to be here. Awesome. So, Thank you for inviting. Oh, absolutely. I'm I'm really excited about this. So in your own words, Bill, you grew up in New York, and what you said was kind of a privileged life. And you said that life was kind of planned out for you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could have gone to Wall Street or whatever. And then things kind of took a left hand turn, and you ended up becoming a Navy SEAL. Like, can we unpack that a little bit? Because that's a pretty interesting pivot. Sure, sure. So, yeah, I, uh, I grew up in New York, born and raised in Manhattan. And my father, Worked on Wall Street. Ultimately, years later, retired from there. So, sort of a the family business in a in a way. And had all my internships on Wall Street, working for a Shearson Lehman Lehman. And yeah, so that was had grew up around it. Had friends in it, all sorts of family members, relatives in it. So that was what I was heading towards. And come senior year of college, I was going through the application process, you know, to apply to all the, all the big investment banks that was progressing that fall. And I happened to have beers one night with a, with a classmate who I found out was trying to go to OCS and with a commitment to go into SEAL training. 
And that's the way the Navy worked, at least at the time, was uh, you would be actually applying to the community you'd eventually want to go to, with OCS being the precursor to that. And at that moment, I decided that would be a lot of fun and really interesting. And I dropped all the investment banking interviews and focused on finding a recruiter, putting an application in. You know, it certainly wasn't rainbows and unicorns getting through that process of even getting accepted to go to OCS. But you know, so eventually you, you thought it would out. be fun. That you know, was the I, mindset. Yeah. Well, fun in the same sense that in Declaration of Independence, uh, pursuit of happiness is right. you know really about fulfillment. So mm. I thought it would be really interesting, and you know the adventure, the leadership. Yeah, and so that was that was the you know on the surface the the, the motivations. Yeah, and you you were a water polo player. You were a water polo athlete. And so being a frog man, going back in the water wasn't something scary for you. No, it, it wasn't. I, was, I, I played water polo all four years and I was, I was captain senior year. And also growing up in the East Coast, uh, New York area, I was in the Atlantic, you know, during the summer, every day, every other day, if not every day. And gotcha. the bigger the waves, the better and all of that. Did you know what this entailed? You know, only, only loosely. Uh, and you got to think back 1989, I tried to track down every book, every article, everything I could find. And, you know, back then, again, 1989, 1990, all the articles I could find would fit in a really thin twofold manila deal. And, you know, it was maybe like three or four books Fast forward to today, you know, oh, the, books, the books are in the hundreds. There's an article <laughs> every week. And, uh, and all, but I mean, and I can remember having these articles in there and I would just read and reread the articles mm. over and over trying to pull out any, any insights. I did have a, you know, a really good family friend who had been a, a SEAL in Vietnam and he gave, you know, both some assistance in helping the process work out, you know, introductions because at first I was getting, my application was getting denied or rejected because they just didn't need any SEAL officers at the time that weren't coming from the academy in ROTC. Mm. Uh, but he also gave some advice on how to train for it. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's not like today where you can go and watch YouTube. And what was that really like famous deal where they cl- followed the entire BUDS class? Was it 247? I can't remember. But uh, like, I think 234. 234. Maybe, maybe there's a book on it too. At least at least there was a book on it. And I remember watching that and just being like, oh man. And then I actually had the chance. You'll love this. I actually got to go out to Coronado and do some interesting things there. Right. And somebody was like, love one it. of the guys was like, hey, you want to mess around on the obstacle course? And I'd heard about the O course and, you know, yep. so you're going to love this. You know that where you have to run across the log and it can move? Yep. Yep. I yep. literally like almost completely flipped inverted and just smashed my hip and everybody was just dying laughing. And I'm yeah. like, dude, this is, this is not a joke. Like when you see, like if you have any risk of, you know, aversion to heights it is not the place for you. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of thought has gone into each of those obstacles. It's, yeah. it's, it's neat that way. So you become a Navy SEAL and you're serving in the military. What were the big takeaways from your time? In the Navy, well, maybe, maybe uh, let me answer that question in a second. Just say, you know, I'd be a little remiss if I didn't, 
you know, talk, you talked about motivations of mm-hmm. getting in and why to do it and all. And, you know, certainly adventure, leadership and all of that were sort of front, front and center. But, you know, in, we were t- chatting about this uh, prior to the podcast a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago. Honestly, one of the sort of un- maybe understandings or feelings that I had at that point was that, you know, coming from a fairly privileged background, and just sort of projecting into the future, you know, I'm wondering to myself then, you know, what kind of what success I have later in life, how much is that due to me and my abilities and how much was due to, you know, a very, you know, supportive, privileged, you know, environment coming from. And the beauty of the of the military in general and, and the team specifically is no one cares where you came from, where you went to school, who your parents are, your friends are, none of that matters. And if you tried to bring that up, you know, what did the instructors go, you know, I don't really care. Just go get wet and sandy. Uh, And so that was, that was honestly, you know, a beautiful and empowering part about it because Mm -hmm. it is, it is sort of, or at least I projected and, you know, to answer your question, you know, sort of takeaway there, it, it was all that. I mean, it was a meritocracy. It was, this slice of America that mm. individuals and backgrounds and life stories that, you know, you're just not going to get exposed to on the, uh, on the Upper East Side of New York. And, you know, those are powerful elements of the whole experience. There's obviously a whole lot more to the experience. You know, the, the, the nine years are almost nine years in. But, you know, that nicely, that was something that I was hoping to get out of it that did actually proved to be a proved to be a takeaway you know that meritocratic experience there and uh you know along with all the adventure and the leadership yeah what i really appreciate about that is that in order to at, to answer that question for yourself you had to seek discomfort like you had to seek situations that put you in a difficult situation to test yourself and i don't know how many people really want to find out what they're made of? Because in order to do that, you have to then wrestle with the question, am I going to fail? Could I fail? And what's really living inside of my head? You know? Well, well and also the nice part about the, the journey was that it doesn't need to be just buds that yeah. you overcome. I mean, that was, that was certainly the hardest mm-hmm. obstacle to overcome, but it was fun later on going to ranger school. I, I then also went to uh, the SEAL sniper course. I was the only officer going through. They don't usually send them. They were trying out something new. But, you know, that was another kick in the nuts. Um, <laughs> you know, for, you know, each of those, Ranger School and then Sniper School, they're each 13 weeks. And, yeah. and you know, and and, and the, the outcome is not certain. I mean, lots of people get rolled back in Ranger School and lots of people don't graduate. Not as many don't graduate as don't graduate from BUDS. But, you know, it's, it's you know, super challenging in its own ways. And then if you don't meet the standards in sniper school, you know, how embarrassing that was going to be. As an officer, right? Yeah. You know, it was a good, good kick in the nuts. I love uh, it. But that was, I, I was looking for that. Yeah. You know, we've talked about this before, but these modern day rites of passage, you know, what does that mean now? And for you, that was kind of your rite of passage. And I guess I don't want to put words in your mouth. For me, you know, I was a walk-on football player at Texas A&M and I was definitely, I was at a time when 
when A&M was putting guys in the draft like all the time, kind of where they're back, almost back to now. But we had like nine guys go like my senior year. And there were some dudes that like were just, you know, you. I looked at me and I looked at them and I'm like, yeah, I know why I'm a walk-on. But there was this part of me that was like, I'm not, I'm not going to quit. I don't care how painful it is or how hard this is. And to me, I kind of walked out the other side of four years to get the crap beat out of me. And I could say I can handle pretty much – I felt in my mind I could handle whatever came my way. Should we be seeking out these rites of passages? And what's kind of the modern-day rite of passage? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's a great question. You know, and as a, a father of two teenagers and a 20-year-old, I think about that. What is that transformative experience, that transformative period where – you know, the umbilical cord is truly cut. You have the opportunity to sort of start to start to show your stuff. You know, it's whether it's college sports at the highest level or military or, you know, I, I, I don't think it can be confined to just those two. I mean, it's it needs to be, you know, a much broader rite of passage. You know, I think, you know, the Australians, they do their their walkabout for a year. You know, the Mormons do their two years of service overseas and, you know, those type of things. But I think it's it's a relevant question for society today in terms of what's you know, what's the what's the experience, what's or experiences, what's the the line where it you know both the expectations go up after that, but also uh you know it's a you know, sort of a, a pilgrimage for the, those in their in their teens and, and and later to to look toward that 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 break with the past. Do you think that we are in an instant gratification society? You know, I don't. I would hesitate to generalize. Yeah, maybe the generalize the trend line of whether it's more so than it was in the past or or less so, you know, I think, I think technology and, and such brings the rest of the world closer mm-hmm. and it, you know, that, that can have, you know, inspirational value. You know, if you are, you know, in other countries and you're not, you don't have the, all the opportunities, you see the world that could be, and you don't see whatever your, you know, sort of your, your village presents you and things like that. You know, it can, there can be you know, certainly a keeping up with the Joneses, you know, but I think there, I mean, there, I, I still have a, you know, a, a ton of faith in, in common sense out there, in people being thoughtful about their, their lives, their careers. I understand. You don't want to character. All I'm saying, my point was, is, is like, because of technology, we can get feedback really, really quick. Yeah. And when you go through situations in life where you may not get feedback for a while and you've been used to this feedback loop where it's like, I did this, I got a follow, I did this, I got this many likes. And it's like, you know, you get these reward centers and overdrive. And then all of a sudden you decide to engage in a process where you may not get a reward for a very long time. And I don't know, I just seen even with myself with technology now, I'm wait, I want feedback now. And I'm like, wait a second, this could take a while. Right. And I have to fight that conditioning. That's where I was going with that. Yeah, no, no. I, I, yeah, I, I agree. You, uh, feedback is very, very quick these days. No yeah. question. So 
you're in the Navy. How did you get into an advanced manufacturing? I mean, and what was that? You know, for some people I know that are exiting the military and they're in this transition, you hear a lot about vets in transition right now. And I have a lot of friends that are transitioning or have transitioned. Some of them really struggle when they come out, especially you are in a really, I'm assuming, pretty high op tempo. You know, and then you go into the regular world and things may kind of whoop, kind of slow down. What was that like for you? And then how did you get into what you're doing now? Yeah. So it was 1998-99. So that was that was about nine, no, eight, 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 nine years in. And it's it's about that time, that sort of period in a career where you're starting to, you know, have to have to sort of make some decisions around do you pursue this for you know, the career and the commitment that it is, uh, or do you transition to something else? And it just, it just is sort of in that f- sort of five to 10 year range, you know, because if you stay too long in the military, but not sort of going all the way that you can, you might or might not get to the retirement point, but also your opportunities on the civilian side, private sector side, start to change, you know, if mm-hmm. you're getting out of the service at 40 versus getting out of the service at 30 or, you know, 20, mid, late 20s, something like that. I applied to one business school and I basically said, if that works, I'll pursue that. If it doesn't, I've got some great opportunities here. But I think an important consideration is 1989-90, and I should have said this at the beginning, you know, that was the internet was booming dot-com was booming, and you really felt like the world was changing, changing faster than it was, you know, even within the special operations community at the time. This was pre-9-11. And so, you know, part of you thinks you're sort of missing out on all of that change going on. You know, I've got some, you know, technology bents myself and, you know, sort of interest there. So that uh, that latched on. I think that was maybe one of the original reasons for applying to business school. So I used business school as a reset point coming out of the teams. And I would recommend that to, to others because I think business school is one of those, you know, advanced education programs that leverages and builds on all of the experiences that you had prior to it, mm-hmm. but allows you to pivot in a, you know, in a new direction. Whereas some other graduate school programs, they're more designed to continue the path that, that you were on previously. And so that was a really nice pivot. I like the leadership side of life. So I sought out, you know, operating companies uh, that, you know, would help me transition the private sector. They appreciated leadership, you know, but they're also then layering in their their business skills. Mm-hmm. And I sought out GE, was able to secure a position with them. It was here in the Midwest. My wife and I had never been to Wisconsin, but you know, at the time GE was a lot like the military, you know, two year, two or three years here or there, then they move you, different right. plant, different country. So, you know, we almost thought of it as, as, a, as a PCS. And fortunately, I mean, we didn't know what to expect coming in, but, you know, here we are going on, you know, almost uh, 19 years in Wisconsin and really it just found it to be a hidden gem. So it was, you know, turned out to be more than we had expected. That's fantastic. And so you, you go from GE and now you're in advanced manufacturing. Well, it was GE. Uh-huh. So I always had the ambition of, buying, leading, building a company. Okay. But when, when you have that ambition, there are two things you need to work on. You need to work on the skill set so you can ultimately be successful at it. And you need to work on the, the capital piece. How are you going to you know, make, make it possible? 
So I was at GE a number of years, left there to join up with a buddy, a classmate, close friend, who had an early stage private equity-backed healthcare services company, Liberty Dialysis. Joined there as the COO, helped grow that for um, a number of years. You know, that was a key piece of, you know, these follow-on experiences of both building the skill set and then, you know, through an equity equity opportunity in that company, being able to, you know, with a with, with the sale of the equity, use that, you know, as well as a, a follow-on private equity-backed company I was, uh, I was part of the leadership team of. Gotcha. So, yeah, acquired a manufacturer, went on a big hunt, two years, you know, looking for companies to buy. Looked at probably 130, uh, oh, wow. 30, in, 30 in detail. I was a contender on six. You know, one pops out the other side. And that was in the advanced manufacturing world. Acquired. Can you explain what advanced manufacturing is for our listeners? Sure. So advanced manufacturing, you know, my my definition of it would be a very, a very high level of manufacturing that leverages, you know, advanced skill sets, advanced equipment, aut- automation, mm-hmm. and data flow, you know, gotcha. so, um, you know, it's, it's sort of digitized, it's, it's data enabled, gotcha. you know, which certainly speaks to the company I bought, uh, now named uh, Pindell Global Precision. And we have, you know, a whole variety of CNC and cam operated multi-spindle technology that we're a contract manufacturer of precision machine parts. So bigger OEMs, think of like the Rockwells or firearms manufacturers or medical device manufacturers or aerospace. They don't want to make all the components that go into what they eventually sell. Mm -hmm. uh, So they contract that out. And we get contracted the machining of those components. Someone else might do the the castings or the forgings or injection molded, but we do machining. Wow. Now we talked before about this and you said there's some parallels to the soft community Mm -hmm. in the advanced manufacturing world. And I found this fascinating when you started talking about this. I think this would be great to kind of get into a little bit. Sure. You know, experience in the team, in this, in the SEAL teams, you know, military in general, special operations community specifically, I think what characterizes that environment is it is small, highly cohesive teams, highly trained, enabled by advanced technology, you know, trying to do outsized things, accomplish outsized objectives. So you think of a 16-man SEAL platoon, given the team dynamic, the training, the technology, I mean, they're trying to you know, punch above their weight in terms of what 12 people would otherwise be able to do. You know, so it's sort of a, it was sort of a, you know, a fascinating dynamic that speaks to that community. You know, interestingly, I found that that same dynamic speaks to advanced manufacturing, you know, which is also teamwork, highly trained individuals, tremendous amount of advanced technology around you, you know, and you're trying to do outsized things. What 20 or 30 years ago, what was required to make certain products now is made by fewer people, but those fewer people are very highly trained. You know, they're uh, supported by very robust processes mm. and, and, and technology. And so, you know, the same, same dynamic. They're really trying to, trying to punch above their weight. I love that concept. I really like that. And you're taking on big things and um, with, with, with kind of like with agile units. 
That's what it sounds like to me. Just a you know great story along that line. Uh, uh, back in March, we raised our hand to make ventilator parts as part okay. of the COVID effort. Yeah, um, raised our hand said, you know, we'll make them at cost if we need to. We were you know received a a customer order. Uh, let's say you know mid March. This customer, ventilator customer, we hadn't had done any work for them to that point. Needed five parts simultaneously, all within a week, and you know, which in in our world, known to the team we have, that was a lot to digest. We succeeded, but it really spoke to that. You know, we've got to have be attacking this problem on multiple fronts. It's not sort of you know single person command and control. We are distributing the tasks. And everyone's got to work independently, but loose, loosely coordinated. So How, was, what was that it, first it, meeting like? I would love to know. Like when you got when you got this order, and you yeah. got your group together. Right. How did how did you get this thing going? I honestly the the first meeting where I you know brought that to the team of we've got to do this was a little, little bit of uh, we don't think we can do this. You know, this is too much at once. You know, we haven't done this before, but, you know, from a leadership perspective, the trick was don't react to it, talk through the issues way. So let people go, let the team go through their, their five stages of grief and, (laughs) you know, come, come, you know, the last being acceptance, you know, honestly, and then come the morning, everyone rallied around it, you know, was was dividing up tasks, you know, tackling what they could, planning, and you know, and and and, and hit the mark. And it was it was really. I'm sorry to laugh, great. but that's really. Uh, was that kind of a pinnacle moment for your crew when you finished? Yeah. And you're like, we freaking did that. Yeah, you know, it was. It was pretty patriotic too. I mean, our country needed you guys. That's right. That's right. And uh, you you were there. Yeah, and it it, it, it was great. And. You know, it, it, it enlivened everyone, you know, an additional sense of purpose, all of that. You know, and subsequently, we were, you know, making ventilator parts for four additional OEMs over time. And, you know, which is, you know, provide great additional customer opportunities and, and things like that. But, you know, for the team, it was, uh, you know, very, very powerful. And I think was a, a nice breakthrough moment, you know, and so sort of that, a little bit of that SEAL special operations mindset of, you know, the sort of the rules or expectations of the past don't necessarily have to apply to the future. We collectively and individually can uh, can play at a higher level. Yeah, I can imagine that would also inject a lot of confidence into your people to even be a little bit more, I'm not going to say risky, but maybe bring some new things to the table down the line, knowing that the team can work together and accomplish some pretty amazing things. Yeah, you know, truly. I mean, it's... Uh, it's definitely not a idea has to be invented here type of attitude. You know, it's your, they're bringing ideas to the table, pulling ideas from outside. But, you know, a lot of it comes down to the, the, the training of the folks and, mm. you know, how your the team is getting developed over time. Yeah. How do you do that? I mean, I know one of the things I know that you're doing is you've created a new model for manufacturing and technical workforce development. That was your PLP for the Presidential Scholars Program. Yep. Yep. Can you talk about like how you're developing your folks when you bring them in? Because I've we've talked about this a little bit. I mean, you you really care 
about their development and about upskilling the workforce and creating new opportunity. Like where did this love come from? And then what are you doing about it? Like, how are you putting this together in your organization? And I guess, I guess fund, fundamentally I'm of the belief that everyone wants a profession, regardless of whether you have a four-year degree or a more advanced degree, you know, Everyone wants a, everyone wants a profession. It shouldn't be just the province of lawyers, doctors, accountants. By a profession, it is something that what the individuals are putting their time and attention towards is going to be valuable. Is going to going to reward them. That it's not here today, gone tomorrow. That there's an enduring quality about it, and frankly, that it's transferable. I mean, much as if you were an accountant. And you're working, you know, at Deloitte in Milwaukee. You know, if you go over to Ernst and Young, you want that profession to follow you. If you go to Columbus, Ohio, or New York, you want that profession to follow you. And it's no less so for. I think everyone has that ambition. I think you know, there's really the opportunity to bolster it in advanced manufacturing. Yeah. And so, you know, we've, we've internally put together a professional development program that addresses those three elements. And that's been, I think, very, very powerful and very, very motivating for the team, you know, using incorporating industry, nationally recognized industry credentials, you know, best in class online learning, you know, inside sort of on the shop floor training, all of that. So we, we've tried to create that, but it's, 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 uh, it's interesting that I've got a parallel to, you know, how the military does it in NCO development, we can we can we can go there. But you know, to answer your question directly about upskilling, I'm also, you know, in addition to those sort of professional feelings about professions, I'm also of the belief that what we learn in the first 25 years of life in general is not going to carry us through the next 50. And I also believe that how we learned in the first 25 years full-time school, in a schoolhouse, dedicated to it, you know, general courses of study, you know, th- things like that don't, can't apply to the next, the next 50 years of life, you know, where people have mortgages and jobs and house payments and car payments and kids and, and all of that. And so it needs to be a very different, fulfilled in a very different way, but that at the core, that, that need to upskill, I think is, I think it's it's one of the missing pieces in our society. The big companies do it fairly well, you know, the IBMs, the GEs of the world that have all the resources to do this internally, you know, but as you know, most of society is small to medium-sized companies. And and while it's great putting the attention on the, you know, the first 25 years of life, I think as a society we need to figure out how to upskill those, you know, currently in the workforce, you know, for, you know, the introduction of new technologies, for new new pathways, all of that. I'm with you because I've seen it in the world that I've been in. People get stagnant. And here's what happens in my mind, too, is when you're stagnant, let's say the whatever you want to call the older generation or or the 10 years ahead of you, they get stagnant. The new folks come in with skills. There's um, pushback. Yep. To implement because you're like, eh, like we, we haven't done it that way. And, you know, you just need to come in and learn how things are being done. And so it suppresses innovation, new ideas. But if there's a, if there's a culture of uh, continually upskilling, this idea of continual education, like in the yearning and desire for it, then yep. I think you have a culture of innovation 
And as long as you're innovating with discipline, things are going to move forward. Would you agree or disagree? I agree. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I like to think, and, and actually, it was my uh, my business unit manager of our CNC group who first, you know, sort of uh, came up with this term and shared it with our team. And that's, you know, he said to the team members, he said, "Look, you got you all, not just guys, guys and girls, you all need to think about this as having your own business. I mean, you have your own business of, you know, John Smith, and you have." Revenue potential, you have cost potential, but you also have, you need to know the needs of the customer and you need to be continuously reinventing and enhancing your business, you know, so that, you know, it can sell your wares, you know, your time, your attention, your skills and all, you know, into that market, the market that is, that is the job market. And there's going to be the company that wants to invest in you. You need to be receptive to that. You need to invest in yourself. And it's not going to all be on the job. It's going to be, you know, thinking about stuff at home, watching, you know, advanced manufacturing where there's a lot of uh, a lot of learning out there on YouTube and LinkedIn and all of these other capabilities to, you know, individually enhance their businesses. And, uh, you know, if you, you know, just like in the private sector, if a, a business sort of isn't keeping up with the times, you know, there's going to be less revenue or less, less demand for that business. And what do you think the impact's going to be on like socioeconomic class and status? Like when you're upskilling different parts of our population, what do you think the overall impact's going to be? Eric, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an optimist by nature. And yeah. I, I mean, I think I would like to think the, the, the impact is, is, is hugely positive. I'm working on a, uh, as part of the PLP with a, right. uh, you know, a, a state, local, regional group um, around how do we create this upskilling model? And the analogy that we use is if companies can upskill you know, their incumbent workforce, the team they have employed right now to higher levels of value add and, and you know, new roles and you know, incorporate new technologies. The, the analogy is looking at that like a, frankly, a, a tornado. They're getting sucked upward and in turn, that vacuum is pulling in folks, you know, from the sides, you know, when, when you have a material handler, you know, in our, in our world, you know, a, you know, a, a material handler who then wants to skill up to go into machining and, you know, to run, to, to be a machinist, to program machines, all of that, they get up, they get upskilled to do that. Well, then you need a material handler. And, you know, it creates that, that vacuum. Yeah. Then that vacuum is the thing that pulls in, you know, some, some of the populations like the recently incarcerated or parents that are moving out of, you know, full-time parenting roles and, you know, those who want to change industries and all that. And so, you know, I think I, it's I like opportunity. Analogy. It is because you're, you're creating, you're creating all this opportunity. And then those who get sucked in can, you know, be in this vortex of you know, upward vortex of getting, upskilled and, you know, earning more wage and all that. It's interesting. So as a society, we still put so much emphasis on, you know, the four-year degree. And it's like, it's, a, it's you know, seeing sort of this, this, this break point in a lot of people's minds. But number one, you know, one of my idols, John Gardner, Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, back for uh, Lyndon Johnson, actually the only Republican in Lyndon Johnson's cabinet. And uh, 
Gardner actually was the one to start Medicare and White House Fellows Program and stuff like that. So, you know, nice, you know, example of uh, bipartisanship. But John Gardner had a great line that if we believe that a four-year degree is the sole cradle of human dignity, you know, should we be surprised that everyone wants to be rocked in that cradle? And, you know, we're seeing this whole push towards tons of student debt, degrees that either might be premature or there isn't a market role for them. And, you know, those dynamics, I believe the answer to that is, you know, this, this focus on upskilling and it doesn't take a degree. It, it, you know, you upskill enough, it could, it could lead to a degree. You could have a machinist, the guy comes in as a material handler, you know, machining, engineering, they decide, you know, down the road, they want to, you know, be a degreed engineer, you know, go for, you know, a four-year degree of mechanical. But uh, I mean, if you just look at the startup world, yeah, how many startups, you know, somebody went to school a little bit, dropped out, learned how to code, had some ideas, learned lean startup methodology, got together with a group of people. And next thing you know, they're innovating the future. Exactly. And I don't think people should be punished for, I mean, literally, there's almost like a punishment and there's a ceiling, an artificial ceiling that can be put on you because of a lack of that four-year degree. And so in order to play the game, to get the job, I'll tell you something funny. In the world I came from, athletics, which I've recently uh, exited, you had to have a master's degree, a master's degree, or that was like preferred, which basically means you had to have it. To be like an entry-level strength and conditioning coach making $32,000 a year. So I interview. I'm not going to say the school, but I go to this school and they ask me to come interview. And I'm sitting with the senior associate athletic director. This is like one of the top administrators. And they're like, well, Eric, the, the, the price is $35,000 or $37,000 we're going to pay you. And I don't know what we got into me, but I just said, <laughs> I said, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> And he just looked at me. I was like, you're you're expecting me to have a master's degree, which I have. Yep. And you want to pay me $37,000 a year? That's the right. value of the master's degree? And he just kind of looked at me like, like he didn't know what to say. But um, to your point, like my mom was a registered nurse. Yep. Now she has a very successful catering and food manufacturing company. Yep. Zero training. Yep. That's why I'm so, I love what you're doing because you're bringing opportunity. Yep. So what do you think it's going to take to be able to go, you know what, like, unless you're like a doctor or a pharmacist, you know what I'm saying? Where like, you really need to have like some serious specialized training to, you know, to guarantee or at least mitigate against really bad and potentially disastrous outcomes. How do we, you know, how do we get rid of this? Right. Well, I mean, I think to your point, without a doubt, so many positions out there are, are overspecked. I mean, Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan was quoted a few months back as saying, like, probably 50% of our, our jobs here at JP Morgan say they require a college degree, but, but do not. But I think the real opportunity is to demonstrate and then and, and execute on the idea that you know, that continuous learning, whether it involves a degree or not, you know, let's just say, you know, it, it, it doesn't, that that continuous learning is rewarded. Mm. It is prized. Parents can be very, you know, 
happy, you know, uh, feel confidence of, you know, in my case, you know, advanced manufacturing, you know, having their son or daughter come into this field and be able to see there is a an upskilling pathway that their child is going to be well rewarded for the pursuit of happiness, fulfillment, meaning they're going to be doing something they they enjoy, you know, and, you know, again, in that sort of journey of professionalism where you want it to be portable and all that, hey, you know, there's some optionality to it that, Mm. you know, you can continue on different paths, you know, maybe down the road path could involve a degree, but it does, does not need to. And I think that we need to rewire ourselves or our, our expectations for our children too, yep. that they don't have to go to a four-year program. Yeah. And, and going to college does not equal success. Right. Well, you know, Eric, it, it's interesting, you know, having spent the time in the military that I did, I think that, I think the military in general offers a ton of positive examples for the rest of society in terms of people development, especially, you know, number one, it can be very technical. And so, you know, that, that in itself is great, but let's, let's talk about the non-commissioned officer path. So, uh, you know, the sergeants, chiefs, senior chiefs, master sergeant, the military does this, I think just, well, let me, let me say the thing the element that distinguishes our military the most, in my experience, from other militaries of the world is the professionalism of their non-commissioned officers. Hmm. That you might say, you know, it's the technology, you know, it's, it's you know, all of these other things. But, it, it, you know, my experience, I, I think it'd be, you know, supported by data, is that it is the capability, capacity, and professionalism of our non-commissioned officers that is a total game changer for the strength of their military now. But I'll tell you, it was not always that way. This is my hypothesis. Up until the late 60s, early 70s, you know, I think manufacturing and the military were very much on that on a, on a parallel path, that there weren't a lot of non-commissioned officer professional development programs. It was all it was a drafted drafted force. A lot of what they were learning was maybe specific to that unit, specific to the service. There wasn't a lot of crossover. There wasn't the rigor around, you know, senior listed academies and testing and qualifying qualifications for moving up. And that was, you know, very much similar to the similar to manufacturing. But then with the with the all volunteer force you you start to see this separation there of all of those elements we just talked about of the non-commissioned officers, senior enlisted academies, rigorous selection processes, screening, training, all the technology enabled. Manufacturing didn't really follow that. You know, it was in the 70s, 80s, 90s when you big business decisions were, you know, let's find the lower cost labor, you know, let's move this overseas or, you know, outside of the country. You know, at the time, you know, dark manufacturing sort of this bad reputation of dark, dirty, and dangerous, all of that. But it is in the last, you know, 10, 10, 15 years or so that 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 tide is starting to turn. And the realization is coming that, you know, we need to get manufacturing back on that path that someone follows, you know, our military's, you know, non-commissioned officer development, that there there is a role for there is a you know an opportunity for individuals again you know 
don't necessarily have don't don't necessarily have degrees, but you know they can create great opportunities for themselves if we can you know layer in this sort of professional development type programs. I'm all about it. When I heard about your uh, PLP or Presidential Leadership Project, that's for that's how Bill and I met through the Presidential yep. Leadership Scholars Program. I'm sorry for using that acronym, but when I heard about that, I was just really um, drawn to the idea because that's where I see. If you just look at technology, there's so many sub skill sets that you can have now, and I don't think education is keeping pace with it, and especially in the computing world and software and technology. That it makes more sense to be able to learn something, and maybe a two year online, you go somewhere and spend some time learning it, and demonstrating that I can do Python machine learning, right? And there's some demonstrated things that I could do, like that's maybe a really accredited. You have projects, you get it done. Then such and such technical firm or whatever Google can hire you, yep. and you don't have to go spend eighty grand, you know, at you know whatever state university. So as a PLS scholar, as a vet, as an entrepreneur, as just an all around amazing human being, you know, we're in election season. Without getting overly political, what is your vision for America? I think at the at the core, it is about the, the vision is how do we create create opportunities? Mm. That it is, you know, I, I believe that the education system needs to be bolstered. I believe business needs to be strong. I believe, you know, that we as a as a society need to provide those those opportunities for growth you know very very sort of bipartisan guy and i think it is all about you know how do we acknowledge the differences that we that we have within society you know but stay focused on creating that opportunity and to do that you need to explore these education and upskilling pieces you also need you know strong industry to be the sort of the engine to create those opportunities. Hmm. I just want to let you know, I feel very blessed to have gotten to know you. Same. Because you're a very thoughtful human being. You're an all-American. I mean, you, you like to me, like you represent the best of America and you're in the heart, you know, you're in the Midwest. It's just kind of, it's like everything that you would hope an America could be. And when you talk about America and we've had conversations about where we can become and we're in a very, a difficult part of our history right now. Yeah. And now more than ever, we need empathy needs to be part of, the, of our of our fabric of who we are mm-hmm. and listening and being around somebody like yourself and some of the other folks that we brought on this podcast. It gives me a lot of hope, honestly. And I don't know, I just felt really compelled to say that because um, our best days are, are, are ahead of us, I think. Right. I, I totally agree. And I think that, that we're going to see in the next 10 years, we're going to see a new group of leaders emerge out of this tension yep. that's going to unite people. And so I think your story is fascinating. And that's why I wanted to have you on this, the blueprint, you know, and uh, I love it. Thank you for yeah. asking. Yeah. Well, Bill, I appreciate you and I appreciate your time and what you're doing for our country and what you're doing for people. I'm excited to see what's coming out of Wisconsin. So. Eric, thanks so much for, for asking me to come on, for being the friend that you are, the, the leader that you are. Just really enjoy what you're doing and, uh, and, and 
really enjoy listening to Blueprint and your podcasts. And I just thank you for being thoughtful and asking really good questions here. Well, thank you. Thanks for joining me today for another episode of the Blueprint Podcast. If you found this episode valuable, would you please help us by providing a review simply by going to ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. Again, that's ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. Also, if you want to stay current on everything high performance, follow me on Instagram at Eric Corum, Twitter at Eric Corum, Facebook at Eric Corum, and LinkedIn at Eric Corum. 